Father, um, the last thing that I need is to be heard, but to hear what you would say. And God, if hearts are going to change, if we do something this morning that's bigger than talking and laughing and singing for an hour, um, if, if there's going to be eternal impact in our hearts, it has to come from the power of the gospel. It has to be your word speaking. So I pray for a supernatural thing to occur, not based on my eloquence or humor or our ability to listen and process and feel and apply, but it's your word that doesn't return void. And so we pray. We, we have open arms and open hearts that we would hear your word and through your grace be changed to fall more in love with you. That's our prayer, and we say it with confidence. And it's in your son's name that we pray, amen. So if I told you, if I said Justin passed away, went to a better place, went to be with the Lord, returned home, was laid to rest, what happened to Justin? Huh? Oh, poor Justin, all right? That's right. Now, I didn't use the word died or dead or death, but you knew through those euphemisms, and oftentimes at church or at funerals, <clears throat> times we're trying to be polite or, or maybe for other reasons, we don't use the term, but we use these other terms to describe the term. Or perhaps in our less guarded moments, we'll say things like, Justin kicked the bucket. He bought the farm cashed in his chips, bit the dust, bit the big one, croaked, assumed room temperature, I love that one, joined the invisible choir, is pushing up daisies, wearing them pine pajamas, took the last train to glory, went to the big castle in the sky, or as my Italian mafia brothers would say, Justin sleeps with the fishes. To all of these, Sir John Betjeman, he wrote a poem called Graveyard, Graveyards, And what he said in this poem, he said, Oh, why do people waste their breath inventing dainty names for death? Why do we shy away from using the term head-on? Why, is, Whether we're leaning reverently to the right or flippantly to the left, we won't many times just come out and say the word. It's like well, not only are we afraid of death, we're afraid of the word death. And to which Ernest Becker, a sociologist, said, of all the things that move men, one of the principal ones is his terror of death. We are terrified of even the concept of death, let alone the reality of facing it. And so we skirt the issue using euphemisms. But all of the euphemisms in the world do not change the fact that it is appointed each of us a time to die. But here we've got crusty old grandpa Solomon, who at the end of his life, remember he's writing this as an old man, facing his own mortality, and in typical Solomon fashion, he does not beat around the bush. 
He faces reality head on. He deals with life's biggest questions, and that includes the concept of death. This is not the first time he's dealt with death. Remember back in chapter 7, what did he say? It's better to spend time thinking about death than ignoring it. It's better better to be at a funeral than at a feast. Better to mourn than to laugh. And this isn't going to be the last time he deals with it. He kind of finishes out the chapters, his, his book, talking about this concept of death. Robert E. Lee, many of you know, the famous general from the Civil War, his last words before he died was, let the tent be struck. Let the tent be struck. And Robert E. Lee had this concept that we need to grasp that unless Jesus comes back, Maranatha, each of us will strike our own tent, will face our own mortality. But the second... Corinthians 5, the language Paul uses, he says, we've got a temporary tent, and when we take that tent down, we leave this battlefield, there's a better land that's coming, and we're going to leave this earthly tent for a permanent mansion with our God. And in light of this, we, we have to be ready to die. We, we have to be ready because, as Warren Wearsby says, he says, the only way to be prepared to live is to be prepared to die. Now, if you get the reference on the screen, great. If not, don't worry about it. The only way to prepare, to be prepared to live is to be prepared to die. In other words, death is a fact, and until we are ready to face that fact, we can never discover, we can never discover how to find meaning and purpose and value in this life if we're not prepared to understand the realities of what's coming next. And so in this chapter, Solomon deals with the heart issues, the matters of life and death. And what he's going to say to us in this chapter, the two conclusions he comes to, is number one, death is unavoidable, and number two, life is unpredictable. Death is unavoidable, life is unpredictable. And he's going to say, since that's the case, the best thing for us is to trust our God to live by faith that he is in control and not us, and to enjoy the blessings he's given us. That's your spoiler alert. So number one, death is unavoidable. He starts out, he says, so I reflected on all of this, looking back at those previous eight chapters. He goes, up to this point, this is kind of what, this is our summary, okay? And concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. He says, no one knows. It's in God's hands. We don't know the time. We don't know. And he says whether love or hate will await us, meaning good or bad things will fall on us. This is his way of summarizing this chapter. Life is unpredictable. And then he moves on to the next point. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. It, as it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. That common destiny that he's referring to is death. He goes, whether you've been a good boy or girl or a bad boy or girl, whether you cheated or whether you played by the rules, at the end of it, we put it all back in the box and we all die. And so what matters then is in the meantime, how do we deal with that reality? In light of an impending death that each of us will face unless the Lord comes back, How do we deal with this? And he shows us three ways that mankind has dealt with, has coped with this idea that we're all facing death. The first one is escape. Escape. 
says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Again, we're all going to die. Death is inevitable. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. So he says one way to approach it is evil and madness, a scurrying around, escaping, avoiding that idea of the inevitability of death. And I love this story that I found about, the, it's called the Merchant of Baghdad, talking about our inability to escape death. One day, the merchant sends his servants to the market. The servant returns a while later, white as a sheet, trembling all over. He told his master, when I was at the market, I was bumped by someone in the crowd. When I turned around, I saw that it was death who jostled me and made a threatening gesture toward me. Master, please lend me your horse so that I may flee to Samara and hide where death cannot find me. The merchant lent him his horse and the servant galloped off in great haste. Later that day, the merchant himself was at the market and saw death standing in the crowd. He approached her and asked, why did you threaten my servant this morning? I didn't threaten him, death replied. I was only surprised to see him in the market in Baghdad. For I have an appointment tonight to see him in Samara. We can run from death, but we can't hide from it. But don't we try our darndest? Don't we do everything we can? Uh, We try to ignore death. We numb ourselves through amusement and entertainment and comfort. We prolong its inevitability with seatbelts and diets But in the end, there's no escape. Red Fox, he joked, he said, health nuts are going to feel stupid someday, lying in a hospital, dying of nothing. George got it. So, you see, he says, no matter how you live this life, the same destiny overtakes us all. That's his point. And the only hope that we can have is by facing that last great enemy, death, honestly, is to confess how wretched we are and cling to Jesus. And then have you done that yet? Have you done that yet? We, we can't hide from death, but we can believe that Jesus conquered it. And that's what we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. So the first one is to try to escape a death. The second one is to endure life, endurance. It says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. In the Hebrew culture, the dog was the most like despised animal there was. Jesus, he refers to the Pharisees as you dogs. It was like you couldn't have said a lower thing. And the lion was the most revered beast that there was. And so what he's saying is, he says it's better to be the worst animal alive than the greatest animal dead. And this is the closest thing that Solomon comes to a compliment in this book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, he goes, look, your life may be meaningless. You are hurtling toward a purposeless void as, as, as you come to your inevitable death, you wind-chasing, evil scumbag. But at least you got your health, right? At, at least you're not dead. At least you can breathe. He says, you're, you're a dog, but it could be worse. You could be a dead, majestic lion. That's, what he, that's, that's his word of encouragement to us. And he goes on, verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. 
Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. He goes, look, you, you want an ego boost? He goes, play a game against a dead person and you will win because they don't know anything. You play them against Trivial Pursuit, you will win because they know nothing. They can't love, they can't hate, they can't get themselves out of a wet paper bag. The, the, the dead can do nothing. And it, it's actually kind of a depressing point that Sol, Solomon makes here. He goes, your life may stink, but at least you're still alive. But surely there must be something more to life than just enduring until the end. And so he brings us to his third point, enjoyment. He says, go, go. Now, for the fifth and final time, Solomon tells us there's nothing better under the sun than to enjoy the things that God has given us, the lot that he has given us. And when he says go, what he means is he goes, don't sit around sulking and whining about this life and about the fact that you're going to die. Get up and live. Don't pout about what you're going to lose one day. Enjoy the things that God has given you now. But what's interesting is specifically what he's called us to enjoy. See, oftentimes when we think of living it up or living life to its fullest, we kind of take the, the Tim McGraw method. Okay, you've heard the song. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named... Uh, so we got some country fans in the house. That's right. All right. So he says, so we think of these like extreme things. We're going to go, you know, skydiving. We're going to go to all these exotic places. We've got to live life to the fullest. That's what he means here. But it's not. What he actually says is slow down and enjoy the everyday experiences that God has given you right here at home. Because if you can't enjoy that, you can't enjoy anything. So he gives us four things. Food, family, spouses, and work. This is what he says is our lot in life to enjoy. The first one, eat every meal as if at a banquet. He says, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. So what he, it's interesting, in, in the Hebrew culture, um, dinner was the main focus of the entire day. They would spend, in the morning, there was an early, like a very, a, a snack, a very light snack, and then they'd have a, a small meal between noon and, and uh, or between 10 and, and noon, history's first brunch, and, and then they'd work a long, hard day, and at the end of it, they would all, as a family, gather around the table for this dinner. And it was a pretty simple meal. There was some bread and wine, that's right, it's in the Bible, um, maybe some milk and cheese, few vegetables, whatever fruit was in season at the time, um, occasionally some fish. Meat was very, very rare because it was so expensive. And what they would call this, they referred to it as breaking bread. And this was an idea, it was a communal act of friendship and commitment. Kind of where we get our idea of communion, the, the, the origins of, of, of some of those ideas. In other words, Solomon's idea of dinner was not driving through McDonald's on your way to soccer practice, right? The hot pocket, although an ingenious idea, is not the biblical definition of dinner. What he says is slow down, chew your food, don't Garfield it down your gullet, talk and laugh with each other. Because the real point is the people at the table you're eating with. Because this all, it's a practice for heaven. 
when we meet God, what does it say? What's that initial meeting of the saints with our God? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the king's banqueting table with, with God Almighty at the head and all of his saints of history surrounding him at a meal. And so and what he says here is, is enjoy the meal, but if you're not enjoying the company, you're not enjoying the meal. Proverbs 15, Solomon himself, a bowl of vegetables with someone you love is better than steak with someone you hate. The new living. Now you know he's serious because he just said there is a way in which vegetables can be better than steak. That's insane. But he says if we're not enjoying the company with those at the table, then we're not enjoying the meal the way God intended us to. Eat every meal as if a banquet. Second one, celebrate every day as if at a party. Always be clothed in white and anoint your head with oil. Um, Life was hard for the average Jewish family. There wasn't a lot of occasion to celebrate, but those few occasions, birthdays and and, and festivals that they would celebrate, they would wear white, and this oil was a fragrance. The New Living says it this way, wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Okay, and the idea was that this was, this is symbolizing the way that they celebrated, and what he says here is always wear white, and always anoint yourself with oil. Now, the, the listeners would have understood this wasn't a literal idea. It wasn't saying all, like, literally wear white every single day. The, the, the heart of what Solomon's saying here is every occasion, even the most ordinary occasion, should be enjoyed as though it was a party. Even going to the grocery store or doing the dishes can be a cause of celebration. And I think this is one of the many ways that kids get it right um, you know, Matthew 18, when Jesus says, come to me like the little ones. You see how easily kids get fired up? Like, right now, with my three-month-old June, niece, June, if I dangle keys, the car keys in front of her face, she, she's having a great time. You do that to me, and I'm like, get those keys out of my face, you freak. What are you doing? Right? To be fair, it worked on George, too, earlier, but, you know, what are you going to do? Or like before church, you know, the Kaleli kids and, and Manny and the different ones that are here as the worship is going on, as the worship practice is going on, we have the, the, the video that now projects into the cry room, and they are obsessed with this thing. Like, they'll all go back into the cry room and sit on the couch, and they'll send one of them to go out and dance around on the stage. They're doing this vaudeville act or whatever, and in the meantime, the kids are all back on the couch. You ever watch them? It's the quietest they've ever been, and they're just glued to the TV like it's the Super Bowl, and then when they do the dance, they just start hooting and hollering, and there he is. He's on TV. He's famous. It's, it's Oliver, <laughs> and we go back there, and we're like, ah, that's cool technology. That's awesome. I'm glad our, you know, moms or dads can watch the screen as, as the sermon goes on. Because I think it, right around the time we become teenagers, we lose our souls. I think that's what happens. Um, and we just become unimpressed and stare at our smartphones all day. That's, that's the inevitability of life. Death is inevitable. But Paul says, rejoice always. Always. You know what the, that word means in the original Greek? Always. In every situation, and every occasion, rejoice. And I think that we have this idea that God is some, like, big sheriff in the sky with a taser, and any time that any of us laugh or crack a smile, it's just, stop it! Now, you get back to praying and going to church, I will kill you all. Right? And, and, and it's this idea that we have to, like, kind of toe the line and never enjoy, when that's the exact opposite 
from the character of God. He is a good father who has given us good gifts to enjoy, but we can only enjoy them when we see them as from his hand. Celebrate every day as if a party. Number three, enjoy marriage as if on your honeymoon. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Yeah, I know, I know. Why do you think I'm a bachelor? Now, he says life is hard, and marriage is hard, and we'll talk about that. But he says, enjoy your wife, singular. You notice that? He doesn't say enjoy your 700 wives and your 300 concubines. And I think Solomon, this old man at the end of his life, he's going, now I know better. The more, more is not merrier, man. It's not. And he kept searching, and he thought, if I add more wives... It's going to get better, but it was, it was not the case. And a spouse, Proverbs 18, it says, is a gift from God. The man who finds a wife finds a treasure, and he receives favor from the Lord. A spouse is a gift from God, a gift given to us to enjoy, given to us to enjoy as a lifetime commitment, can only be enjoyed as a lifetime commitment psychiatrist Scott Peck, he said it this way, commitment is the foundation, the bedrock of any genuinely loving relationship. He's just echoing what the scriptures tell us. If you want a loving relationship, commitment must be at the bottom of it. So look at me. You want to enjoy your spouse. You want to enjoy your marriage. You must commit yourself to it fully. Enjoyment follows commitment, not the other way around. And and talking straight, you'll never enjoy your spouse as long as you have a pornography problem. You can never enjoy where you are if your head is somewhere else. If you're spending time flirting with, spending thoughts on, energy on, creating imaginary scenarios in your head with someone else, you can't enjoy the one you have. You'll never enjoy your spouse if you're cheating on them, even if it is just in the mind and in the emotions. And Solomon says, trust me, the grass is not greener on the other side. I would know I've tried a thousand lawns. Right? It's not greener on the other side. And you know why it looks greener over there? Because you haven't jumped over the fence and jacked it up yet. That's why it looks greener. And the reality is that your husband or your wife was lush green grass, and and you know what happened to it? You did. You're the one that messed it up. And if it's ugly brown grass, you have to own your part in not tending to it, in not giving yourself fully to it. Now, is this going to take some work? (laughs) Absolutely. 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 And I, and I think that God sometimes is up there chuckling about marriage. He goes, yo, check this out. I'm going to wire them completely differently. They're going to think differently. They're going to want different things. And then I'm going to make them cohabitate. It'll be hilarious, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is a nightmare waiting to happen. But hear me. Everything 
everything beautiful has its cost. Everything beautiful requires work. The view from skyline required the hike. The Sistine Chapel required the years of sweat. The baby required the labor. No one's ever going to preach at you that marriage is easy, but it is, according to the wisest man who ever lived, God's gift to you to enjoy. But you can't enjoy it if you're not committed to it. Pour into your spouse what God has given you, and who knows how deep and beautiful it can be. The fourth one, work as if it were your final day on the job. Whatever your hands find, you find to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. And for time's sake, all I'm going to say is what we just applied to marriage can be applied to our jobs. Okay, Whatever, wherever God has you tomorrow, enjoy that. Not the job that you could have, not the job that you want to have, not his job, her job. If I only got that promotion, if I only got that raise, if we can't enjoy and be content with where God has us now, nothing else will satisfy us. And so he says, don't try to escape death. Don't try to merely endure life, but enjoy life as a gift from God. It's the only way that we can honor him and find any meaning. So Solomon, he predicts the response, well, if death is inevitable, then I'm going to try to do my best to make this life go as well for me as I can. I'm going to control, I'm going to manipulate, I'm going to get things to work out to maximize this life now. But he says, here's the problem. Death is inevitable, but life is unpredictable. And the first thing he's going to bring out here is the best man isn't always rewarded. The best man isn't always rewarded. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. He goes, just because you're the best doesn't mean you win. We've been following Ali Ostrander, okay, Peninsula Grace's own, rocking the track and field world, a freshman in college at Boise State, already one of the top runners in the nation. She had come in second place only to senior from Notre Dame, I don't remember her name, and she was only lost by two seconds in the previous 5,000 meter race. Friday, I got it up on ESPN3, Chromecasted to my big screen. We're cheering on Allie, and she is well within reach of being able to win the race, and halfway through, she has to step out because her knee gives way. And she's done. I was devastated. And, and I'm sure she was as well. We saw, I saw the tears in her eyes. All the training, all the hard work, and something you don't have control over takes you out of the race. <laughs> we cannot guarantee. He says time and chance happen to all. That's our perspective. From sovereign God's perspective, it's not time and chance. He is in control. And then he says, Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So he goes, look, here's Nemo, just swimming around, minding his own business, looking for his dad. And out of nowhere, this net comes and scoops him up. And he says, in other words, just because you're putting the work in, just because you're trying your best... Sometimes stuff just happens. And the best doesn't always win, and evil falls on us all. 
and it's all meaningless under the sun. Then he goes on to say, the wise man isn't always remembered. The best man isn't always rewarded. The wise man isn't always remembered. He tells us a story. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. So this tiny little town is about to be invaded, and they've got no chance of survival. Now look at what happens. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom, but no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. So he says there's this town that's on the brink of destruction. This wise man says, I know a plan, and he saves the city. Now there, actually the Hebrew allows the room to say he could have saved the city, So best case scenario, he saved the city, but no one honored him or remembered him. Worst case scenario, he gave his wise plan, no one listened to it, and the city got taken over, and potentially everybody died. And he goes, wisdom is important, but the problem is that oftentimes it goes unheeded. And then he finishes up the chapter by saying, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. So he says, wisdom is great, but one sinner destroys much good. So even in the face of wisdom, he says, one sinner can mess it up, mess the whole thing up for everybody. In the very beginning, Adam in the garden takes a bite of the fruit. One foolish decision brings death to all of mankind. Achan's sticky fingers bring ruin and loss at war for an entire nation. David's lustful eye causes everything to spiral out of control. It's a lot easier to tear down than it is to build back up. So, our little ray of sunshine, Solomon, says you're all going to die. And life, in the meantime, is going to be chaotic, messy, and unfair. Okay? You put that on a coffee mug with a picture of a grumpy cat and we'll call it a day. Right? In fact, I did. Here it is. This is Solomon's outlook from chapter 9. You got it? And that's exactly why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. He says, if our hope in what Jesus accomplished for us is limited to this life here under the sun, and we are the biggest fools on the planet. We are a joke. Because guess what? Jesus didn't come to make our life better right now. In fact, he said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be godly, I promise you, you will be persecuted. I promise you, you're going to have a hard go of it. The way is narrow. He says it's not going to get better. Life is unfair Life is unpredictable, and even for the life of the believer, it doesn't get any easier on this side of the sun. But are you ready for the good news? Paul says it doesn't end there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, death is inevitable because of Adam's one sin. Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life because of Jesus's one act on our behalf. And what we celebrate in two weeks 
is that Jesus died in our place, and then he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death, and that's why we can celebrate. That's why we can find meaning. That's where we can find purpose in our lives. It is a hope that lies beyond the sun, and that's why we titled the message series that, because the only way we're going to find life, the only way we're going to find hope is if it goes beyond the sun. Right here with our five senses, we're not going to find it only a new life in Christ. And that's why, to go back to verse 4 and wrap things up here, he said, among, anyone who is among the living has hope. Do you catch that? That's Solomon's perspective under the sun. You only have hope if you're alive, because once you're dead, it's it, right? From what we can experience, that's it. And the famous philosopher um, from Rome, Cicero, he, he copied that. He said, while there's life, there's hope. So as long as we're living, there's hope, implying once we're dead, there's no more hope. But that's a limited perspective. Anne Frank, many of you know, um, the Holocaust victim, the young girl, well acquainted with life's unfairness, uncertainty. Um, she took Cicero's comment and she actually flipped it around. And what she said was, while there's hope, there's life. While there's hope, there's life, and I think it was the 14-year-old girl, not the Roman philosopher, who got it right. For, both, for those of us that have hope, a hope that goes beyond the grave, that's where life is. But where there is no hope, for those who don't know Jesus, there is no life, even if your heart is beating right now. So where is your hope? Where, where is your hope? Not are you attending church. Where is your hope? That's the question. Is it in this life? Are, are, are you simply trying to, um, trying to ward off death and live as long as you can through personal health care and caution? Are we trying to escape the reality of death, numbing ourselves with, with entertainment and comfort or power or success or popularity? Are we simply enduring this life, going, well, I'll just get through it and see what happens next? Or do we embrace the reality of death with the hope that lies beyond the grave in Jesus? Because here's the secret. The hope in him not only gives us assurance for the future, but it's the only thing that allows us to enjoy life now. Eternal life is not just quantity, it's quality. In other words, it's not just accept Jesus so that you'll live forever. You realize everybody lives forever. I mean, once we go past the physical realm into the spiritual, everybody lives for eternity. The question is, are you in his presence or not? That's the dividing line between heaven and hell, between enjoying life and not enjoying life. And that means right now and forever. The only way we can enjoy anything today is in his presence and if we don't see life as from the hand of God, if we're not walking with Jesus, then none of this can be meaningful. But if we are walking with him, all things can be redeemed and enjoyed. So after this service today, we're going to have a meal. And we can sit down and we can enjoy it together because of Jesus. And I know I'm going to enjoy it because Mary Jean made some food and she is amazing at that. And to enjoy our spouse and our kids this week can only happen if we first and foremost know Jesus.
And when you go to work tomorrow morning, where you are, not where you're not working, but where you are working, the only way we will find contentment and enjoyment is if we see it from the hands of a good God. And if we're walking with Jesus, and then in that, every occasion can be one of joy and thanksgiving. And when he dangles the keys in front of our face and jumps on the screen in delight for us, we can enjoy this life as God intended. Let's pray. Father, death is a terrifying thing. And even though all of us are going to face it, and many that we have known that have gone before us are facing it, and even God right now, many that we love might be facing that, and we're dealing with that reality in this room in different ways. We want to skirt the issue. We want to escape its reality. We want to simply distract ourselves from its reality. But death is coming, and you've not called us to be distracted from it, but you've called us to, to, to face it head on. Not with the idea of inevitable doom, but in the hope that lies beyond the grave. And if, Lord, if there's someone in here this morning that, that their hope does not lie behind the grave, beyond the grave, and, 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 and someone in here is trying to find their worth and their meaning and their salvation in something here on earth, I pray for a repentance. I pray for a changed heart that will find Jesus as the only one who can satisfy, the only one who can offer true hope. And Lord, I pray that through him we will find the ability to rejoice in all situations. Because if we're satisfied with Jesus, only there can we enjoy everything else he's given us. And Father, I pray that we as a people would not hold on and put our hopes in a spouse, our hopes in a job. But the only hope, the only one who can satisfy is him. And as we enter this time of Palm Sunday and the death of our Lord and the resurrection of our Lord, give us a passion. Give us a desire that will stop with nothing less than knowing Jesus as our life that he would be the apple of our eye, that he would be the only one who satisfies us, and then in him, everything else can be seen as a gift from his hands, from your hands, that we can receive with contentment and enjoy the way you've intended them to be enjoyed. God, make us satisfied in Jesus, because he is better. He's better than anything else in this world. He's the only hope, the only joy that is of any meaning or value. But that's got to be a supernatural thing. May your word speak to our hearts. May we change the things we need to change to find you as the only water that will quench a thirsty soul. It's in the living water's name that we pray. Amen.